0: Before we get started, I want to let you know that this is also a video interview you can find on my YouTube channel under Eric Hundley or just go to erichundley.com. It'll take you right to the channel. Now on this channel, I not only have video interviews that are sometimes both audio and video at different points, But I also have a live stream, like the most recent live stream was actually a discussion between Jim Casey, who's a retired FBI agent and special agent in charge, and Norm Pardo, who was OJ Simpson's manager. Norm Pardo released a documentary saying that OJ Simpson didn't do it. I brought on Jim and Norm and they challenged each other on whether it happened or not. It was a great time. I think you might really enjoy that, and I hope you consider checking it out. Now, for today, we have Robert Barnes, who is a, shall we say, sometimes controversial lawyer. But the great thing about Robert Barnes is that he's on both sides. If he represents somebody you hate, he probably represents a person that you love. Hope you enjoy it. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we're joined by a legendary attorney, Robert Barnes. How are you doing today, Robert? Doing good. I want to read off. You have a description on your website, and maybe it's a good place to start. You call yourself lawyer, giant slayer, legal crusader, constitutional lawyer, civil trial lawyer, criminal tax lawyer. Is that a path, or have you shifted over time?
1: I would say what unites me is that I'm a an uh, I represent underdogs. So I think that's uh, cases that I care about, cases that I like, cases that I think have value, and so that's what sort of ties the threads together. Because I've done a little bit of everything. I've I've, I've been a small town lawyer, been a big city lawyer, been a corporate lawyer, uh, or uh, clerk for a corporate law firm, clerk for an Indian tribe you know, you name it, sort of across the board, I've done it to some degree in the legal context, domestically, nationally, internationally, state court, federal court, tribal court, uh, courts and other places where I've been a witness or uh, been a participant in some manner. So uh, that that's really the thematic ties. Substantively, most of my work is in litigation of some type or another, uh, but probably a third of it uh, is not in court at all. Uh, it, it's preparing for matters outside of court, uh, protecting people. Uh, in a wide range of context, so whether it's contracts or taxes or uh, assets or whatever.
0: Okay, and I I know you bring up John Grisham a lot. Are are his characters sort of an influence on your life?
1: Both. Uh, so it's two things. One, I think Grisham, if you want to understand the American legal system, the best text to read are Grisham. In fact, I've had an ongoing debate with. Uh, a man who's now on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, he's now a federal judge, but he was a prosecutor when we first met. And he'd written articles critical of Grisham, saying oh, Grisham right. creates this distorted perception of the law that's not reflective of how the law really works. And I've I always disagreed with him because I thought it was very apt and very accurate and very descriptive. What it is, if you have a certain kind of romanticized view of the law, mm-hmm. uh, then you may find it disconnected to the way in which uh, Grisham writes about the law. I mean, I, there's ways you could re- look at Grisham and say that too is a romanticized view of the law. But, mm. and, uh, and I would, but it's not an idealized view of the law. It's a realistic view of the law. And so I, I think Grisham is the best describer of the legal system in the United States of any legal writer ever. I think uh, you'd be better off reading Grisham than you would be going to law school if you want to understand how to practice law and what the practice of
0: law is. Wow. Okay. So it's not necessarily specifically accurate to a thing. It's more like the spirit of the law that he captures.
1: Yeah, that and certain practices he captures well. So if you want the mindset of a street lawyer, the mindset of a corporate lawyer, the mindset of a prosecutor, the mindset of a defense lawyer, uh, the mindset of a wide range of the, the mindset of a little plaintiff's lawyer, like the, the, the rainmaker, uh, the mindset of an investigator in a criminal defense context, like uh, the Pelican brief, all of that would be apt and accurate in this context.
0: Very interesting. Your story, yourself, could almost be like a Grisham tale, from what I've seen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, no. I mean, when I started out, I was a. uh, That's how other people described it as well. So when I was a kid lawyer, my first, I first worked for a street lawyer, uh, who did everything, took in everything off the street, and he was sort of sporadically present. So I had to learn and grow up quickly (laughs) on the practice of law. Uh, And that was part one. And then part two was uh, I then started working for a public interest law firm. And as part of working for that public interest law firm, uh, I had a little white pickup truck. That was my first – actually, the first ever car I ever had because I hadn't driven before then. Uh, It it cost uh, $2,000 to get. uh, And I had my little white pickup truck traveling across southeast Tennessee working for a public interest law firm representing victims of domestic violence, victims of abuse, and victims of predatory lending by banks and financial institutions. So the uh, it it has had that kind of path after that work for a plaintiff's lawyer, one of the best plaintiff's lawyers in the country with all the good and bad with it. If you you read Grisham's King of Torts, you see all the good and bad uh, with with plaintiff's lawyers, especially the bigger plaintiff's lawyers. They're not always quite motivated just by a conscientious pursuit of justice. Uh, and then after that, worked for a small boutique law firm and then started my own firm. So it's had that kind of path. And I've had a lot of unusually prominent cases, in part because of my interest in cha- using cases to change the law and change society, uh, and also because I've had some uh, the benefits of some success in that context.
0: That's amazing. Now you went to Yale, though, correct?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I had an undergraduate scholarship to Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, so, uh, well, first I was a, I mostly religious parochial schools. Uh, my, my parents were Baptist. Uh, mm-hmm. my mom was an independent Baptist. Uh, so sort of the Christian fundamentalist tradition, uh, I went to a little mm-hmm. school called Tennessee temple up until sixth grade, then attended grace Baptist Academy after that. Uh, uh, and then I got a scholarship because of a local wealthy family gave me a scholarship to an elite private school here in the city that Ted Turner had gone to, Pat Robertson's gone to, and it was a boarding school predominantly, but it had a few day students. I was one of the few day students. And then from there, got a scholarship to Yale University. I left uh, after my third year because it became clear that Yale was going to start discriminating against uh, people from lower income backgrounds, both Mm -hmm. in the the way the Ivy League operates is to to make it at least a little bit egalitarian. And I would emphasize just a little bit because two thirds, 75 (laughs) percent. Uh, Upper middle class, affluent—they come from the top one percent of the country, Mm -hmm. predominantly—and they think of themselves as a meritocracy. They think that they're there because they're the best and the brightest. I used to steal from Jesse Jackson, who said it's more like the richest and the whitest. Uh, (laughs) Not so much the the, the whitest part as much these days, but the—but overwhelmingly upper middle class. I mean, that's what uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., the great uh, African American professor of African American studies and history at Harvard, Mm -hmm. uh, said that if we were really to uh, be—if we did a movie. Uh, about the African-American experience in the Ivy League, it wouldn't be straight out of Brooklyn. It'd be straight out of Brookline, referring to the very (laughs) affluent uh, suburb. So uh, when I was there, I used to like to go to the library because the Yale Library was built during a time period in which uh, there was union strife. So a bunch of the old masons in the uh, end of the 19th uh, 19th century, end of the 1800s, carved into the library these sculptures mocking uh, Yaleys. And so I just thought it was great. So the uh, so I used to go there and, and, and just sort of and most Yaleys had no clue that that was there and would go through. You could get all the free newspapers you wanted to read, all the free magazines you want to read because they're all there at the Yale library. And I came across the Yale Alumni Monthly Magazine and they were floating a trial balloon for their alumni about getting rid of the two mechanisms by which poor students could have access to Yale, which mm. was what's called need blind admissions and need based financial aid. So, need-blind admissions was they would not they would not discriminate against you if you were poor in the admissions process, and that was if you couldn't afford it, that that wasn't a factor. They would mm. first look at who should who should be admitted, and then need-based financial aid was they would make sure that whatever amount of money you could not pay for Yale, Yale would make up for it. Okay. Uh, and so the and so that that's how I was able to go to Yale get a full ride. Mm. Also, I happened to be part of the the, the Yale uh, admissions dean. His last year as head of Yale admissions was the year that I was admitted into Yale. And uh, there was a bunch of us that came from lower income backgrounds that were admitted into Yale. Unbeknownst to us, he went to great efforts to get us there.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Because uh, I didn't realize until I got to Yale, when I got my admissions letter, on the bottom of it said, had a postscript from the dean of admissions saying it's kids like you who belong here. Uh, and at the time I thought, oh, you know, that's just a smart little move, you know, have the Dean write something to, to get you to go there as opposed to some other school. Mm. And when I got there was the only time I found out that that was very rare. Everybody got a form letter. Nobody got a personal note from the Dean. And so then I realized, okay, he wanted this here. That was part of it. I quickly realized that there was a massive class gap between me and everyone else there. (laughs) Uh, and it was reinforced by culture. So it was very much an upper middle class culture, affluent culture, but uh, but northeastern and west coast. So it wasn't uh, I was used to frat boy, rich boy, southern boy culture because the scholarship (laughs) to the private school I'd had here and in Chattanooga, I knew that. But this was a whole different animal. This was northeast, west coast. Everything else was flyover country culture. Sure. So it was like the elite of the elite. And they went back to the
0: Mayflower and and things like that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Old money, uh, real power. Um, And so I, I had. So when I read the Yale Alumni Monthly Magazine and they're talking about getting rid of need-blind admissions and getting rid of need-based financial aid, uh, I realized that they could do that throughout the Ivy League. And basically it would become completely exclusive and kids like me would never be able to get admitted there again. And so me and a few other people formed up kind of a protest movement. A buddy of mine who's – he's to the left uh, these days. Well, he's always always been to the left. Uh, but he, he, he came up with a, uh, titles called Poor at Yale Pay. Yeah, that was his Yeah, you know, he was always coming up with <laughs> things like that. Um uh, Sam Ingersoll, great guy. Uh, you know, he adopts poor he adopts kids from all kinds of backgrounds now. That that's just the kind of guy he is. And the uh and he and another buddy of ours, uh, Nick Adamo, who had grown up homeless on the streets of New York City up until the age of seven, so he could tell stories. The thing he liked to do at Yale was just sit down at some random cafeteria table and start regaling him with his stories from uh, what it's like to be five years old and homeless on the streets of New York City in the winter and mm-hmm. how the ER room is, is your second home and so forth. The just you know, amazing kid, amazing guy. So we started a big protest movement. And luckily for us, uh, David Lionart, who is now the uh, economic an economics editor at the New York Times, was mm. the uh, editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News. And he loved our story and he put us on the front page. And it was, and it was a crash course in so many things that I learned because – it turned out that the what he understood was that the entire Yale administration, it, oh, the only way they knew what was happening on campus was through the Yale Daily News. Even though the <laughs> Yale Daily News was not necessarily reflective of what was happening on campus. Mm. So if Lionart wanted to make us look like a mass movement, he could. And he did. And so how he did photographs, how he told the stories, he put us on the front page. All of a sudden, Yale University administration just hit every uh, panic button uh, imaginable. They thought there was this... A uh, revolution on campus uh, that was going to also expose the fact because every year when they raised money, they would their number one pitch was for financial aid.
0: So but they were planning
1: news. on exactly they were planning on shifting money uh, on a massive scale, and it was all going to get exposed by this uh, little uh, this little protest group that looks huge because the Yale uh, Daily News editor in chief likes the story and thinks it's an important story. I mean, he spent years. Pro, getting Yale to dis, disinvest from South Africa. So he was just that kind of guy, old school hmm. lefty, um, and still is. We, we debate now and then on, on, on Twitter, on social media. He's obviously not a Trump fan. But, the, uh, <laughs> but he made us look huge. I was 19 years old and showed up. They actually had a meeting, and I showed up 20 minutes late to it. I was the only one late, and I was sitting at the top of the table, and it was every dean of every part of Yale University sitting around this table waiting on this 19-year-old kid from Tennessee to show up. It was late. Oh, wow. And I just walked in and I thought, oh, yeah, I, I, I still when I look back at it. I don't understand where the mindset came from, because I acted like, of course, they're all waiting for me. The uh, of course, our movement's a great movement. Uh, logically, it was insane for, for you know a kid like me to have that kind of potential influence.
0: Well, my father had a saying. Um, he was a general contractor and he said, make sure you hire a teenager while they still know it all.
1: Yeah, exactly. Correct. Exactly. It was just this surreal <laughs> sense of confidence and belief um and it was just the nature of it i used to have the bruce springsteen's born in the usa song on my answering machine at yale you know that that was my mindset and so the uh, when i sat down and met with them uh, i remember one of the yale deans said well money doesn't because one of my our criticisms was not only are they already not not only talking about getting rid of poor students here they already discriminate in favor of wealthy students because wealthy students can through donations of their parents get in. And I attacked legacy, what they they call it legacy admissions. And I attacked it ruthlessly. Uh, you know, I mean the, I, I used to, there's still some people mad at me because of statements I said all the way back then, but I used to say, look, if you're sitting in class and you're sitting next to you, is somebody who's clearly not very bright. And you're wondering why a uh, daddy just probably made a donation and that's why they're here. I mean, I was, I was harsh about a lot of this stuff, um, uh, but more harsh than I would be today. But I was, I was on a sort of class war at the time because I was mm-hmm. so disappointed in Yale. I thought Yale was going to be this great uh, academic institution that was about meritocracy. And instead, it ended up being a way for the aristocracy to maintain and sustain power and was very exclusionary in its cultural and uh, personal affiliations and associations with people from lower income backgrounds, particularly if you didn't fit within a minority group. If you fit within a minority group, then you could, there were programs to make sure you were protected. So if you were mm-hmm. lower income and Puerto Rican and Mexican and African-American, not so much if you're Asian, uh, not so much if you're Jewish, but if you were any of those groups that were considered historically discriminated against, then mm-hmm. there were some programs to look after you. And culturally, you were embraced by the African-American and Latino groups on campus, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican groups on campus. Not so if you're a working class white kid from the South or the Midwest or the Northeast. A pork cracker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you didn't <laughs> fit in at all. I remember this one student came up to me and said, well, you know, I, mean, I used to say Yale's really thought Deliverance was a documentary of the South. You know, I mean, that <laughs> that's their perception. I had one student come up to me and say, well, why don't you wear camo camouflage and go out and recruit some of your fellow students? I'm like, well, we, 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 everybody's not you know, making moonshine back in the hills. You know, the, 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 you know, you get out of the Burt Reynolds 1970s movies, all good movies, but not exactly descriptors of what happened. And so I started. So we say we had some success with this movement, got all this attention from the institutions. But then it became clear that this is how the institutions operate in general. Uh, It was one of the things other things I learned. I learned about the press. I learned about how power operates. I learned about how administrators and politicos think. I learned about how mass movements can be built. I learned about how protest operations work. But one of the best lessons I learned was how the system buys off dissent. So I remember sitting there once with a uh, assistant Yale dean who was basically making it clear that as long as I played ball, they would form this in- little committee, and this committee would make a review, and the committee would just magically end up concluding what they had already decided should happen, and and what and in the exchange for my silence uh, about what was going on, I would get into Yale Law School and my life was fully protected. And I remember this assistant Yale dean saying, "Look, Bob, don't you want your kids to have the benefit of this in the future?" And I was like, no, I don't want I, I would be horrified if my kid replaced some kid like me or a kid like Nick Adamo, or Lesam Ingersoll, uh, not on merit, but based on privileged uh, position. And so the because of that, uh, I realized the only way to get Yale's attention was to leave in protest because nobody ever did. The whole assumption was this is such a golden gift mm. that uh, you'll never give it up. And so we can always compromise you. Uh, And as a kid, I always liked Robert Frost's poem uh, about choosing the lesser traveled path. Uh, And the and so it it was one of those kind of decisions. I I remember people saying that most people uh, don't realize the movie Our Town or the play Our Town, which talks about most people sacrifice who they are every day and they just don't realize it. So people forget to live while they're living. And I thought it was one of those moments where I had to make a decision that was seminal to who I am and who I wanted to be. And so I thought, well, I'm going to leave in protest to get everybody's attention. And it did. It got everybody's attention. All of a sudden, all the old lefties at Yale started reading the – and I wrote an essay on it in the Yale Herald. And then they wrote a newspaper article about it in the Yale Daily News. Um, And they ended up uh, talking about it on campus, talking about it in classrooms, English classes, history classes, sociology classes about this kid who was leaving. And it got so much attention that within six months after I left, Yale University reversed course and said they would protect need-blind admissions, protect need-based financial aid, would not discriminate against poor kids, and they've stuck to that ever since. Um, and so something that was about to go the other way, that if Yale had succeeded, the rest of the Ivy League would have followed, uh, got reversed uh, just because a couple of us decided to make a stink about it, and we had the good fortune of uh, having the right guy at the Yale Daily News at the time.
0: Wow, what, what an amazing education and I could Yes, see patterns. it was the
1: real education I got at Yale. It wasn't the great teachers or professors or you, oh, it, it was that education.
0: And I mentioned it armed you for life, not only that, but even private school, because as you put it, the typical frat boy, Southern um, aristocratic type of money versus the Northeastern money. I'm sure that you have faced them and dealt with them in court your entire life.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, it was it was edu- be, what it taught me was a 19 year old kid from Southeast Tennessee could help change the course of the Ivy League. And if you could do that, it meant that far more things were achievable than what you thought. And so uh, no matter how difficult the odds were for any case or client I ever took in the future, uh, I I could always look back to that as I achieved something that on paper never should have achieved, especially in retrospect. Um, And so that was part of it. The other part of it was that you can take on power and win uh, but also how to take on power and win. And also it, it, it was a guiding, whenever I had a question about which path I should pursue professionally, yeah. that was my defining choice, was leaving Yale in protest out of a position of uh, principle. And so when I had an opportunity to do corporate law or I could go into government work or I could take the easier path or I could just do a conventional kind of plaintiff's work, I've always turned it down. Uh, because I've pursued what I thought would make the most difference and biggest impact uh, because that my guiding star has been the decision I made as a 19 year old kid at Yale.
0: Wow. Very prophetic. And, and then you went on from there to, and I probably am missing points, but a highlight is you defended uh, Wesley Snipes, right? And from what I understand, he was pretty much written off as doomed.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so after law school, well, while I was in law school, I clerked for a native American tribe Then I clerked for a corporate law firm. I'll never forget the corporate lawyer. I clerked for the corporate law firm because I wanted to see what the experience was like, see how that system operates. Also, I wanted to make money so that my little sister, they paid you absurd amounts of money uh, for just a (laughs) summer's clerkship so my little sister could go to college. And so – I remember at the end of the summer, the, the corporate lawyer brought me in, the one that's the head of all you know employment decisions. And she said, I think you'll make a great lawyer someday, Robert, but just not a great corporate lawyer, which he was right about. <laughs> deeply, deeply true. I, you know, I sort of had an, uh, a smirk at the time about it. After that, started out working for a street lawyer, then worked for a public interest law firm, uh, and then uh, for a plaintiff's firm. Uh, and then not long after that, uh, went in, w- went to work with someone who went to law school with me in a boutique law firm. And mm. there, the first famous case was probably the Ralph Nader case and everything related to it. Then and we represent. So what happened was uh, they're trying to exclude Nader from the ballot. Mm. And there's all these rules and procedures. This 2000? That- yeah. So this is 2004 after his success in 2000. Oh, the okay. Republican Party and the Democratic Party had spent a year, their top lawyers, figuring out ways to keep Nader off the ballot because both of them were more scared about the, uh, the, the success of an independent. Then they were what impact that independent would have on either one of their party's nominees' chances to win office. It tells you how much the system is driven to keep this two-party duopoly uh, present. And all the laws and ballot access laws are written – they're all bogus. They're all written under the pretext that if we give voters too many choices, they'll just be hopelessly confused and won't know what to do. Um, and so they write all these laws to keep people off of the ballot. And they had created this huge legal sophisticated scheme to keep Nader off the ballot in as many states as possible. He ran out of money, and I saw him on a C-SPAN interview saying, if any lawyer out there is willing to help, please, now is when I need him. And so I said, hey, I'll I'll do it. I'll do it on a contingency so that I'll, I will only get paid if the, we win and the state owes me money. Oh, wow. um, but you don't have to front it. And so it was me have against – Had you
0: done political law before that?
1: Uh, we had done some cases. Uh, we had done some petition circulator cases and some ballot access cases, but this was the first big one that I had done. And that case ended up lasting four years. Uh, went up and down to the Ninth Circuit like four times. It was, uh, there was a, They went up to the Supreme Court where they tried to get the Supreme Court to take the case when we had won at the Ninth Circuit. Ultimately, we won several big victories in the case that protect, that allowed people to circulate petitions regardless of where they're resident, allowed people to get access to the ballot uh, regardless of when they decide to declare their candidacy, uh, give people maximum choice and maximum political participation rights ultimately, but it took four years to do it. Uh, the district okay. court did everything possible to prevent it from happening. One when when we did win, he was required to make the state pay us our legal fees. And, of course, that he tried to make as low as possible. So, you know, every battle conceivable took place in the case. The Republican Party was uh, against us. The Democratic Party was against us. The uh, all of the aligned state officials were against us. uh, But ultimately, congratulations,
0: you unified the parties.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Correct. So the uh, uh, and, and from that ended up representing a lot of little uh, third independent candidates all across the spectrum politically. So the mm. Green Party, the Peace and Freedom Party, the Libertarian Party, the Constitution Party, the Tea Party types, independent party types. Uh, if you name them on a when people get mad about someone I'm representing politically, when the only thing mm. that all of them have in common is that in my cases, at least they're almost always the underdog. Uh, right. But there's nothing in common politically that they believe. That's what I always tell them. I say, I guarantee you there's someone I've represented that you, you would be deeply bothered by politically. Because Ralph Jones
0: and Ralph Nader aren't going to have tea together?
1: No, exactly. I mean, there's a, some things they surprisingly <laughs> agree upon, but not the kind of things most of their followers agree upon. Um, and so the same with the Peace and Freedom Party and the Libertarian Party. Peace and Freedom Party is the last standing socialist party in the United States um, oh, wow. that with continuous ballot access. And so the so all of that uh, yeah, same with you know, represented Jill Stein in 2016. Right now I'm representing the Libertarian Party, the Constitution Party, the Green Party, the independent Green Party and an independent candidate in the state of Virginia. Uh, to try to get access to the ballot during this pandemic time period. Is so, it like
0: a joint suit where they're all working together to? for yes. the same basic purpose?
1: Exactly, that they all can't get on the ballot under the existing rules due to the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. and the, yeah, the state of Virginia is saying we can take away your job because it's so dangerous. If you go out to work, we can take away your business because it's so dangerous. If you operate it, uh, we can deny you the opportunity to go to church or school because even that is too dangerous for you to do. But by golly, uh, you better go out there and circulate petitions if you want to get on the ballot because that, that somehow is magically safe. Uh, well, in, the, in
0: fairness, they only say that mom and pop shops are too dangerous to run, but I mean, yeah, Walmart and Home Depot are okay. Yeah,
1: the virus is very sort of corporate woke. It's you know it's like the, the virus is a, uh, has a consciousness of its own. So it knows oh, Walmart, I got to stay out of Walmart, I got to stay out of Costco, I got to exactly. stay out of the uh, institutional stores. But once I see a mom and pop store, I'm raiding that right away and just going to infect everybody. And churches. Especially. Yes, exactly. Ch- churches, yeah, churches, especially if they start singing. They start singing, got to get in there fast. That's why Governor Newsom is making sure nobody's singing too much in churches. Uh, it's an insane time to be alive these days. But uh, but yeah, so that led up to in part the Snipes case, because he originally hired me for a civil rights case, because what happened was the city of New York was conspiring with city officials from Indiana, county officials from Indiana to falsely accuse him of being the father of a, uh, a woman's child. Mm. And the backstory is just insane. I mean, the, when I got the case, Snipes was under a, an Interpol warrant for his physical arrest to have his forcible DNA extraction taken to see whether wow. or not he was the father. And Wes is a very independent guy, and he was not one of those people that he was going to have the government take his DNA for free. That was just not who he was. And he, he found it horrifying that, that, that this accusation was even out there publicly because he had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I researched it, and it turns out that the woman was someone who uh, suffered from a, the various a, a schizophrenia uh, that her grandmother had been trying to get her mental health help for years and the state had refused. And what had happened was she'd had a mental break. She thought Oprah stole her image. She thought uh, Prince stole her lyrics. And she went and saw Blade and thought uh, the And here's what she put actually in her report when she went to the uh, welfare officials. Because what happened is they changed the welfare laws. So you had to name the father in order to get welfare benefits. So uh, that dramatically increased the number of false accusations of paternity. Because a lot of women in that position did not want to out the actual father because that would cost him Mm -hmm. money. And he was providing support under the table. And so instead they would name three or four or five other people.
0: Is that something that you were, um, I I say, equipped or sensitive to with your background? Because you're such a multi-class background that you could kind of relate to her side and paint under the table with the father versus the other um, while they're your adversary, I'm sure that there might be a little sympathy in there.
1: Exactly. And I dealt with people in the domestic violence context where some assault victims, it's so destabilizing on their life. Well, one, very vulnerable people are picked for assault in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that that that's, a, that's sort of an eggshell effect that takes place there. And then you have the effect of the assault can destabilize them in such a way that one of the reasons why you don't see some of those particularly child abuse allegations ever make it to court is they uh, they tend to become witnesses that will be perceived as not credible. Mm. But the reason is because of the psychological damage that was either they're already psychologically damaged and that's why they were targeted in the first place, or the effect of the trauma has created that psycho- psychological damage or reinforced it to a degree. that. And that, that was the case of this woman's story. As soon as I saw the basic allegations, I was like, okay, what's well, probably the case is she has been victimized. Um, and she created a fantasy story to make herself feel good to survive psychologically. And she's also trying to survive materially by hiding the identity of the real father. And she just combined the two. And what she needs is mental health assistance. But the politicians looked at it and they're like, oh, we can, we can sue Wesley Snipes. We can say Wesley Snipes is the dad. And I think some degree of racial prejudice played into that, uh, by the local Indiana officials who were involved. But I think mostly it was a desire for notoriety, a desire for celebrity. So it's fascinating is when she they knew this from day one, I suspected it was ultimately able to prove it. But uh, when we got all the underlying documents, what she had come in and told them was that she listed the actual father's name and she only listed one other person. And she said uh, it was Jesus Estratus. But, you know, him as Wesley Snipes. So right away, that should have been a sign. And, and then her whole story was that they'd had eight kids together. They'd been secretly married in, Me- in Mexico. The government had ordered it be kept a secret that the conception of this particular child was almost like an immaculate conception. He showed up at her door in blade outfits and told her what a great actress she was going to be. And and in order to, to, to test the accuracy of the, uh, these allegations are required to give physical descriptions of the father. There are 45 different things to identify. She couldn't identify any except one. She said, tattoos, maybe. And the reason why she said maybe was because she didn't know if the blade tattoos were real or fake. Uh, uh, for the movie uh, or for the rest. So they knew from day one the allegations were bogus. But what do they do? They know he lives in Florida and had a home in New Jersey at the time, but they don't go to either one of those states because those states have good due process principles in place. Their own state, Indiana, had due process, and Illinois had good due process principles in place. So instead they picked the family court of New York City because the family court of New York City is a disaster zone. It has these people that are not that are at hearing examiners with maybe a year out of law school who can't get an actual job or they throw in as a hearing examiner who are on an ego trip and a power ride. They, they This guy was issuing one crazy order after the next uh, he was ordering. He was ordering uh, Snipes' personal finances disclosed, subpoenas to uh, you, you name it. Uh, and he's the one who issued the had the Interpol warrant issued for his physical custodial arrest to have him forcibly strapped down and do a DNA extraction.
0: Are these people like the patent trolls of East Texas, only a family court? Yeah,
1: exactly. And and they're just the worst kind of power freak. So they're like the bad character from a 1970s movie, uh, Southern movie. They're they're, they're the boss hogs, but they're boss hogs in New York City with all this incredible power because New York City has this Byzantine backwards bureaucracy. I have a current big case dealing with New York York City right now. So I'm going to go through the fun and joy of all that New York City again. I mean, like New York City is the only place where the city's judges that handle all the misdemeanors, they're all Mm -hmm. appointed by the mayor. You know, the I mean, it's like uh, a lot of the superior court judges that handle everything in New York City have to go through this political
0: machine process. Are they replaced with the next um, mayor or are they there for life?
1: Uh, they only get they get 10 year terms. So basically wow. the mayor gets to dictate. And like I have I'm representing Amy Cooper currently in New York City, right. the quote unquote Central Park Karen. Uh, that's going to turn out to be a completely false label for her. Um, but uh, the the mayor has been been constantly demanding her full prosecution and punishment and now i'm going to be in front of a judge that he picked uh i mean this is unsettling that the, this doesn't happen in the small town south where you where people imagine you know backwards justice no backwards justice is the city of new york
0: how did that come about if you don't mind my asking um that you got involved with the Cooper case. I know, I know that you're on with uh, my our mutual friend, uh, David Fryheide, a.k.a. Viva B- Fry. Was it because you guys were discussing and speculating on it that you came under attention or how did you wind up on that case?
1: Basically, what happens in almost any of these cases, I, I used to be the third or fourth lawyer hired. So usually they try to hire <laughs> someone inside the system. And someone inside the system didn't work. And they realized, I need to find somebody that's outside the system. And what's happened is I've done so many high-profile political cases over the last mm. 15 years or so. Because there was Nader. Then there was all the different political parties. Then there was the Wesley Snipes case in New York City. where We, ended, we, we sued the family court. We, they said we couldn't do it. But I did it. And ultimately, they, the city had to settle and dismiss oh, all wow. claims against Snipes. And then I represented them again in the criminal case in Florida. Which was completely crazy um, on criminal tax charges, and then after that, have handled everybody, you know, from Joe Francis, uh, Girls Gone Wild guy, who that that that's a whole another story. The oh, wow. to uh, uh, people all across the political spectrum, a, a businessman who was targeted by the IRS because they had stolen sixty million re- medical records of all kinds of influential Americans, and he protested, so they decided to put him under macroscopic, microscopic uh, investigation for about half a decade had insiders try to steal his business. Then, of course, representing Alex Jones at Infowars. So people across the political spectrum, if there's a high-profile political case, people, uh, it, when they start looking for someone, when they start to realize, hold on a second, I have a political case. I need someone who knows how to defend me in a court of public opinion and a court of law and is not part of the system, who's not part of the entrenched insider system that a lot of lawyers are. Is um, there somebody
0: you wouldn't represent? I mean, I want to oh, put yeah, that no. out there because I'm sure you heard that before, but like a uh, uh, Richard Spencer, is that somebody you'd represent in general or uh, Jared Taylor?
1: Or? two groups? I, I generally stay away from one racist, uh, just don't like them. Uh, so true racist. I mean, these days they're labeling anyone racist, but I mean, an actual sure. racist. Uh, and I don't want anything to do with the Klan Nazis, Stormfront, Richard Spencer, none of those people. Um, and then otherwise, I will not defend. Uh, generally, I won't defend someone I think is guilty of a serious crime. So the I have to believe they're innocent or I won't defend them. Um, And in certain crimes, I won't represent unless I'm absolutely convinced of innocence. So child abuse. uh, I've never done a child abuse defense case. I've never done a rape defense case. I've never done anything like that. Uh, And I'm deeply disinclined to do it. People will reach out to me for those. And I pass those right away. In fact, I've told clients. Like if this ever comes out to be true about you, even if I'm defending you in a different arena, I'm not going to stick with your case. I'm out. So that's part of our agreement in advance that if this – that these are the kind of things I do not represent and if I believe you're guilty of, I don't want to help you in anything. Um,
0: and people can isn't look the at my – Isn't the Amy Cooper case uh, kind of tricky that way though? Because, I mean, it is on video. On A lot of people say, oh my god, look, it's right there. Everything is well, – all the I evidence. Find it, I
1: I find everything about the Cooper case from a publicity perspective insane. I, I've been bothered for a while at what I consider the attempts to recreate reality TV, Jenny Jones, uh, uh, Springer, in, in with, with uh, involuntary videotaping of private citizens in public and social media, because it seems to me that's what we're doing. We're recreating that gotcha moment that they used to do that in the Jenny Jones case. There's a great Netflix series called Trial by Media, which goes into yeah. what happened there. But it, it, it's, it, I find it very exploitative. Uh, and so I'm bothered by it at that level. The second level I'm bothered by it is the rush to judgment that accommodates it uh, and, or that, or that is, it's, uh, accompanies it so easily. So in this case, it's like, OK, whenever – as a criminal defense lawyer or a civil litigator of, of, of a long time, I'm very mm-hmm. familiar with the idea that the set of facts that we're seeing are rarely going to be the actual set of facts. That the accusations will always only tell a piece of the story. Like as Paul Harvey famously said, he used to do a whole introduction and you'd think, oh, geez, this is the story." Yeah. Exactly. Because now let's talk now let's talk about the rest of the story. with well, that great voice <laughs> of his. Uh and the he did the, if people don't know him, he did that farmer commercial that they put on the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. A farmer is da da. da that's that great deep Paul Harvey voice. Um I think it was for maybe Budweiser or something, but the uh uh the but yeah, so Uh, From my perspective, I'm bothered by the idea that we are going to start to rush to judge people in the in the social media context when they're being involuntarily taped, in which almost every time we're only going to be seeing something stripped of its context. And I think what people are going to find is, I mean, uh, they've charged her with something I don't believe is, in fact, a crime under the New York laws, but that will be a legal matter we deal with later. She never made a false report, actually, to police. That will be proven in time. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, uh, yeah, it that just like didn't that. happen. I, oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so so it a just lot of the appears
0: that way. Correct.
1: Right. Well, it, well, two different things. One, it appears that way because people don't know the context. So, what mm-hmm. what happened is, uh, in in or some of the facts are already out there. These set of facts. There'll sure. be a lot more facts that people will will feel guilty about judging her the way they did. Once all those facts are out, those will mm-hmm. be coming out. Uh, But to those facts that have already come out, there's a reason why nobody's complained against her. So Christian Cooper, the other gentleman who was filming it, who is the quote unquote victim in the case, uh, opposes the prosecution, has said he he doesn't support it. He won't participate in it. He won't help it. And there's reasons for that. It's because he one he believes she's being way she's being disproportionately punished for what he calls 60 seconds on video. But secondly, it's because of the whole context of what took place that day, uh, some of which is, is is public. With the part that's public is he put out on Facebook that what he did is while she was there he says I'm going to do what I want and you're not going to like it. And a threat. Yes, that's what it's right after that he starts to film. So mm-hmm. in that context, that's why she's saying you're, you're threatening me and, and 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 she was freaked out by it in general. And as Viva has pointed out, and there'll be independent evidence of uh, by professionals who have watched the video. Uh, she free her physical posture is one of freezing. He, he said words that caused panic, uh, in her, Mm -hmm. and there'll be reasons for that as people will find out the, uh, so that's part of this story. The other part of the story is that the, the actual New York criminal law, uh, only has a staggered degree of liability and you have to make a false report directly to a law enforcement officer. Or you have to be pranking an emergency service in order for it to be a crime. And she never pranked the emergency service. And she was completely forthcoming with the law enforcement officer. So the uh, because that the reason they they, the New York laws are structured so that you don't have uh, we don't want to make it a crime for you to get anything wrong on a 911 call. Because a 911 call, you're going to be in a traumatic state. So do do we want to make it a crime if they describe the T-shirt wrong? Uh, if they get a certain guess wrong, uh, I mean, th- we we want people to call 911 because we don't want them to become Bernie Getzis uh, to go to a true New York City history, you know, where he right. took the law into his own hands. Or
0: we Kitty don't want Genevieve's type of case where everybody watches her get killed. Exactly,
1: exactly. We don't want that to occur, so we want them to call 911, and the and we don't criminalize that unless there, it's a prank. Uh, I mean, so to give you an idea, New York law for a long time. The, the, the way the false report statute was written, the first thing that was a crime was if you simply made a false report that caused public panic. And that was clearly unconstitutional because it's so broad. Uh, and uh, but, but amazingly, nobody even thought to challenge it until this year. And the uh, New York uh, court said uh, the the highest court in New York is the Court of Appeals. It's sort of weird. The Supreme Court's a lower court by by label, by title, and the Court of Appeals oh, is the Supreme Court. Um. But the New York Court of Appeals said this is absolutely unconstitutional. It's a violation of free speech. And so then the next one is the only thing they wanted to criminalize in the 911 context was pure prank calls. So they wanted to stop these kids calling, hey, let's see what happens if they show that kind of jazz. Um, And then uh, once you're talking to a law enforcement officer in person, once you're filling Mm -hmm. out a report that they have a higher responsibility, then you have to be accurate in the information you give if you are gratuitously providing it. So, for example, they didn't want to make it a crime if cops came and knocked on your door and asked you information. They 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 considered that unfair to make that a crime. Instead, it was only a crime if you initiated uh, the uh, investigative process. Uh, And so there's no no evidence will show that she ever made a false report to the police at all. And that, in fact, her belief that she was being threatened was based on his own statements and her state of mind at the time. But like my bigger concern, one reason I took the case, I originally passed on it. Then when I saw them accelerating and trying to totally destroy her life, I was bothered by it more and more. But Mm -hmm. I have a young nephew who lives here in New York um, who four or five years from now will be an adult uh, who's autistic. And I'm concerned about if we're going to go around filming people uh, that Mm -hmm. may have for their own personal history reasons or psychological disposition reasons have limits on their ability for emotional self-control regulatory self-control, and we're going to start calling it crime if they call 911 instead of you know, doing self-help, which we don't want. Uh, I'm concerned what it does for people that are vulnerable. People that for uh, whatever emotional reason may be vulnerable from their personal history or in the case of my nephew, uh, autistic. And like he likes to go into this uh, – my brother will vacation up, up in upstate New York. They live in upstate New York. Uh, mm-hmm. And to this you, you're a beautiful little lake town and he'll take uh, my nephew in to these little shops so that he can – and sometimes there's, there's ones that will usually let him go behind and he gets to see different donuts and other stuff, which he likes. He has a very intense interest in certain topics. And unfortunately, like if, if somebody new is there and they don't understand that that's what he normally does, they might yell at him and it, it causes oh. him to lose control. Um, so it's like we got to be more. Re- how we handle each other civilly has got to not be a rush to the criminal justice process or a rush to judgment, period. These public humiliation, public shaming campaigns. I'm all for it if the person's in a position of power. If you're a politician, that's part of your bargain. You, you, you can be publicly critiqued and mocked and satirized and ridiculed. That's part of the deal of being a public official uh, of seeking political power over other people, but not if you're just an ordinary, everyday private citizen walking your dog in the park. Then you, you you don't deserve to be shoved onto the public platform involuntarily just because you have one emotional reaction within a 60 second time period that's already been stripped of its context. So I'm bothered by the whole meaning of what this case is, about what it means for people that are have may have predisposed. Uh, predisp- dispositions that make them vulnerable to these kind of uh, public onslaughts, to just the whole idea of this reality TV, uh, involuntary reality TV through social media, involuntary filming of people in public places, um, and the over-criminalization of things that shouldn't belong in the criminal justice system anyway. So it happens to meet at a cross-section, and particularly in New York, where there's a history of things getting a wall because of their, bura- their uh, overly bureaucratized, politicized process, of adjudication in New York, and the mayor, who I think is a bumbling idiot, uh, Mayor D'Stasio, uh, who's the <laughs> in my view the only reason why she was even prosecuted in the first place. So it happens to fit a cross section of. Once I realized what was happening and what its impact would be from a public policy perspective, uh, I decided to take the case, and that's how. And I, these cases come to me because people know about me, my success. In high profile political cases and a a certain fearlessness that I think is necessary to do well in those cases. You you have to if you're tied into the local political structure, how likely are you to call out the mayor? How likely are you to call out the (laughs) court system? I mean, like to me, it bothered me. I, I was shocked when I discovered the New York City criminal court judges for misdemeanor cases were appointed directly by the mayor. Uh, who could be uh, open about his bias in the case and wanting a particular outcome. It's like, this is not, why is Tammany Hall still alive
0: in 2020 in New York City? Will the mayor be called on the case?
1: Uh, no, but it, uh, I don't think so. Uh, but the net effect of it, I mean, he's, it, it's, it's one of the only cases he's ever talked about in his entire history as a mayor is mm-hmm. this case
0: uh, that's being prosecuted and he has publicly by... stated that yes. she should be convicted, if I recall.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and he's called for it repeatedly and he's called for it publicly. Uh, and it's going to be his appointees that maybe decide what happens to her. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that I find unsettling. I think most people don't like the idea that the, the prosecutor's branch gets to pick the judge or appoint or put, have control over that judge in the first place. It creates a very unsettling situation. I think we should, mm-hmm. Tammany Hall is supposed to be dead, but people don't know it's fully alive in New York city.
0: But isn't that the same thing? And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but if uh, let's say Trump said such and such should be convicted, wouldn't he be stepping way outside of his parameter?
1: I I think in general, I think he should be careful. The main difference is uh, if he says someone should be convicted, for the most part, it won't be a uh, it it will it will never be a term limited judge who was only appointed it by him who could only be reappointed by him or his successor. And I think that's the problematic aspect is it's when it's your political appointee if that I, I would have a problem with with Trump doing If Trump controlled who adjudicated the case. And in fact, many legal people have already been critical of Trump when he's even got anywhere close to anything like that. Right. And, and I'm like, what
0: it's kind of pointing out is just going yeah. on the opposite side because
1: and the, it those seems same almost people are, like
0: de Blasio's ordering her to be yes, convicted absolutely and
1: the and the same people that were critical of Trump when he had far less power to accomplish that when he said anything even vaguely similar to it are suddenly mute when the mayor is saying it, and the mayor has the power to accomplish it,
0: yeah, that's quite trouble
1: yeah so <laughs> now, I think for all of those reasons, I jumped into the the, the case.
0: I'll get criticized
1: by both sides, but that's that's par for the course.
0: Yeah. But you kind of enjoy it, I think.
1: Yeah, I don't. To me, being a real lawyer (laughs) is what you believe in and what you value and what you pursue. And you've got to pursue it fearlessly Um, and good, bad or otherwise. I've told my son it's not always good, but uh, my psychological disposition, fear just isn't a factor in it. So they do these tests like where you go into the woods and you find a cup and you come to a house and you come to water and it has all these underlying psychological meanings. Well, one of them is you come to it and you find a bear and they ask you to describe the bear. And it turns out, I didn't know this at the time, but it's how you describe the bear, its size, how it, how you approach it, how it's going to approach you is how you perceive fear uh, in general. Well, I saw hmm. the bear as a uh, koala bear. Uh, so a little huggable bear. So the, uh, it turns out <laughs> to be revel- revelatory. So I've told uh, I, I, my my son it's like it's not always good that I have no sense of fear because I maybe get myself. Into some trouble that maybe I could otherwise avoid it because I have no sense of fear at all. There's a sometimes where you need that sense of fear to protect yourself or protect others. But you know the but I try to use that to my advantage in contexts like these. Uh, not worry about who can say what, what you know who can attack you, who can judge you, who can come after you. And I've structured my law firm to be a mercenary style structure so that I'm not dependent on any particular local political community for protection, either for my professional license or for my professional reputation. And so consequently, and I don't practice in places that I live. I don't practice in Las Vegas or Nevada, where I uh, is my primary residence um, oh, okay. as a general rule. And because that way it provides for it, it, it avoids the uh, early on, I discovered in my legal career that if you're locally rooted, then the downside to that is you're going to be locally limited. Um, I, I, agree. Because, yeah, I, mean, I dealt with judges who like what yeah. he had is we had a case. This kid was being badly abused. The judge didn't make the right ruling because he fell asleep throughout the trial. turned out he had an undiagnosed medical condition that caused it. And I remember being upset about it, talking to the other lawyer. uh, And I didn't handle it. I just found out from from another lawyer that was part of our little group. And he said, look, there's not much we can do about that because if you go out there and attack that judge, every judge in town is going to hate you. And I was Mm. like, OK, that's a problem because that means judicial corruption is going to be covered up. That means things that need to be light like this. It's like, why haven't people been screaming for years in New York about maybe we need to have a different system for appointing our judges who decide a lot of cases than having the, they, them be handpicked by the mayor? Uh, or are you going to go
0: after that or are you just hoping yeah, to are, shed light on that while you're in the case?
1: I'm, I'm going to go after that. The, I've already gone after the mayor on Twitter, social media on it, uh, that he, should, he he, he, should, his entire office should recuse themselves, have no further statements or involvement in this case. Uh, and that any judge that is assigned the case, in my view, should be a judge not appointed by this mayor, or we should have a different judge appointed. I mean, there is no judge appointed yet, so we'll have to wait until that process unfurls. Uh, And maybe when we get that judge, it won't be an issue. Um, What I've always said is the kind of judge who will recuse themselves is the kind of judge you don't need recused, because they're so self-aware of potential bias that that they're going to filter that out. It's the judge who does need to recuse themselves, will never Mm -hmm. think they need to recuse themselves because they're so unaware of their own potential source of bias. Um, But I think, but I would like to uh, see the system change. I would like New Yorkers to start to step back and think, hold on a second, we're the biggest city, one of the biggest cities in the world, we're the shining city of freedom and liberty to the rest of the world. Should we have a Tammany Hall backwards 19th century justice system for our cases? Uh, Isn't that an embarrassment on who we are as New Yorkers? Uh, The the other thing I find about this case is New York's never been bashful. So the uh, new, I've never found New Yorkers to be bashful. I mean, the uh, the Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing, it's about racial conflict and just on a hot day in New York City. And we, that was never considered a bad thing to be a little bit hot uh, and a little bit blunt in New York City. So it bothers me that all of a sudden New York's going to be so politically correct that if you don't use exactly the right verbiage at a, at a moment of stress or pressure, uh, that now you might, be, uh, might go to jail for it. You might go to Rikers for a year for it. Uh, that strikes me as nuts. Uh, and very counter New York. It's a slap in the face to New York as to who New York is. Uh, but it's all because Mayor de Stasio, as I like to call him, instead of de Blasio, <laughs> uh, you know, this is a guy busy locking up playgrounds to make sure Orthodox Jewish kids don't get to play on uh, on the weekends um, while he's demanding this prosecution of someone he's never met based on an incident he did not personally witness based on a sliced piece of video that don't, didn't capture the con- context of what took place there. Um, that, but I think that's what's happening. It's the politicized case. So. Uh, and, and a politically correct mentality that's really foreign to who New Yorkers are as a people.
0: Well, fantastic! And can we follow you on this case at uh, Barnes underscore Law on Twitter?
1: Yes, at Barnes underscore Law, uh, and I'll be putting up facts about the case at LLP dot com, our website. Uh, we're going to start uploading cases. I want – because I, I see a lot of these cases as an opportunity to educate people, educate mm-hmm. people in their rights, educate people in their – a lot of – I got involved politically in ways that I had, had stayed away from during the Trump mm-hmm. era because there's been so many opportunities to educate people on the law and because a lot of the press was often miseducating people on the law. So I thought it was a useful opportunity to really clarify things. And I want to use these cases to do that, too. Say, hey, let's let's look at these things from a bit. Uh, you know, aside from whatever you think about Amy Cooper, what are the broader context and what are the broader mm-hmm. consequences of prosecutions like this? And should we reexamine how they're adjudicated, examine how they're investigated, examine how the law is interpreted, examine whether this is what we want to be part of in the
0: first place? Well, wonderful. I'd love to have you come back if we can and we can follow up and you have so much more to talk about that i barely even scratched the surface.
1: Oh yeah, happy to anytime.
0: Hey, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yep, glad to be here.
0: Thanks so much for checking out the episode. Really means a lot to me. And on that note, i want to shout out a couple very special people. Jason De Filippo and Gavin Stone. Both became members on my YouTube site. That is really incredible. It helps me, and I deeply, deeply appreciate their faith. I hope you check both of them out. Jason DeFilippo, you well know, he has been on the show before, and he hosts Grumpy Old Geeks. He is a master producer, and to have somebody of that stature give me that kind of confidence really means a great deal to me. Gavin Stone is also a friend, and he is an author, and we actually have something in the works pretty soon. I think you guys will enjoy it.